Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and it's another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This is the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Here comes 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, I'm I'm great, my man. Uh, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to this. It's going to be a fun one here today, I think. Um, it's always fun. Did you see the game last night? Oh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, national championship game. Gosh, I wouldn't miss it. Uh, you know, being an old Southern boy, you know, I got to <laughs> have a lot of loyalty to the SEC. And, uh, boy, uh, it, it turned out the way uh, – the way I wanted it to do anyway. And, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of fans that, that it didn't, but, uh, what a, what a great ball game. You know, I hated to see that, uh, that the Heisman trophy winner break his fingers. I guess that's what he broke. I mean, they had him all casted it up pretty quickly. You know, he sure, he sure played a heck of a game. So yeah, I'm a big football fan, man. Don't miss them all. Uh, actually my bucks won this weekend too, man. On yeah. the NFL side of it. Yeah, and uh, never that, uh, that Tom Brady move was a pretty smart deal. So we'll see how that pays off in the next game for uh, for Brady. But uh, yeah, loving some football this time of year. All right, hey, let's get it on here with Super Studcast number thirty-seven, part one: the tribute to Danny Hodge. Now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com/studcast. Three plus hours honoring America's greatest amateur wrestler with stories and love from fellow Oklahoman Jerry Briscoe and others as well. Part two will feature the great Oklahoman Cowboy Bill Watts. It's got to be the best so far of these growing tributes from Ron about fallen stars that are becoming legendary. You're kind of becoming famous at that, stud. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Uh, I hate to see him pass. Uh, that's the horrible part about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I really, I really... Uh can't say i enjoy but i'm really honored to have the opportunity to talk about a guy like danny hodge wow i mean uh if fans don't know this guy they sure need to listen to this one because uh he's a remarkable he was a remarkable human being no doubt about it i'm interested because you well you've got my interest definitely peaked i've heard you say a lot of things about this guy so i want to know more tnstud.com is the tennessee studs home on the World Wide Web. You're going to find everything there. 
all 182 studcast, all 37 super studcast, including the one with Danny Hodge, photos, T-shirts, Brutus, his thrilling lion novel, the great five-pack of classic Southeastern Continental Wrestling DVDs with 60 matches and 12 fantastic hours of historic old-school wrestling. It's all right there at TNstud.com. Plus, if you want to know Ron better, visit TNstud.com for videos of his past matches, comments from fans, a tremendous gallery of more than 200 wrestler photos from past Studcast and Super Studcast, or you can just read his biography of extensive accomplishments in sports and businesses other than wrestling. TNstud.com has everything you need to personally get to know the six foot nine, 265 pounds of Ron Fuller Welch. Just don't get so close. All right, Stud, where are we riding to today on this Studcast? Okay, my man. Uh, you know, as with every ride, we're we're going back in time again, Dave. And, and in today's training, uh, we're gonna begin with that. Listeners are gonna need to put on those owner hats today. And we're going to join uh, a 28-year-old owner of a wrestling company that has a big meeting with all the high-level management at WBIR-TV, one of the strongest television stations in the state of Tennessee. And uh, he's going there to analyze with others uh, in a conference room full of uh, high-level people at that television station. They're going to be analyzing in November 1976 television rating books from Arbitron and Nielsen. Now, we're also going to take a deep dive into the week of January 16th, 1977 uh, in Southeastern Wrestling. And it's going to start off on a Sunday afternoon. And we're going to look at the Knoxville card. It's headlined by a cage match between Ronnie Garvin, Big Bad John, and me and my brother. Then we're going to dissect the TV show that promoted it. And this one has a record five of those actual videos from 44 years ago. Plus, at the end of that, announce the attendance for this Coliseum show. Today's learning tree is going to deal with a great question about how and why my father picked the last name of Fuller when he began his wrestling career in the late 1940s. It's interesting. Okay. And I be, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm, I'm betting you were probably the tallest man in the boardroom for these meetings at the TV station. <laughs> Well, that's just about everywhere I go, man. I'm the tallest yeah. man there. I was actually the tallest and the biggest there, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was an unusual situation, and uh, we, we there's some there's some other good things in in that we're going to talk about as well. All right, that's cool. Sounds like another great stud cast to me, Ron. All right, I got my horse, Mister Weezer. Saddled up, ready to ride. We must be going to that big meeting with one of the largest TV stations in Tennessee, right? Is that first? Yeah, yeah, but I got to back up there, man. What? <laughs> well, what's that horse's name again? Mr. Weezer? Oh, my goodness, man. I hope he don't give you COVID, man. You know, oh. does he have a problem catching his breath? Or anything you, like that? You insulting my horse again, Ron? No, no, I'm just asking, Dave. You know, I mean, that's. <laughs> You know, we got a lot of ground to cover, and if you got a horse that's doing a lot of wheezing, I don't think you're going to make it through the show today. I saw the video with you and your son and your grandson, and I know, I know the Tennessee, the Tennessee stud Fuller leg lock. So let's just back off, okay? That's all. <laughs> But we won't we won't go to that extreme today. We won't get into yeah. into any Fuller leg locks today. I'm glad you're but, seven uh, hours away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, we are going to get into a little bit of fuller leg lock today, come to think of it, uh, in a match we're going to talk about. 
So, uh, you know, so, so uh, I'm ready to roll with it, my man, if you are. I am good to go. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, you know, we're wrestling in Knoxville on Sunday afternoon in the winter of 1977, every Sunday afternoon. And, uh, and I considered each Sunday basically to be the beginning of my week uh, because you start out in Knoxville on Sunday. I could say you end the week, but I like to consider it that Sunday afternoon, the beginning of the week. And we're going to be discussing later in the ride the first day of this week, that Sunday card of January 16th, 1977. And then my ride with uh, WBR uh, began in May of 1975. And I did most of my business with the sales manager there. He was a great friend of mine and a great guy. His name was Lynn Lepper. And he was one of the primary guys there, one of the big time backers in the management people, among the management people. They really wanted wrestling on that television station. He believed in the product, and uh, and he he believed that uh, we could, me, him, and Les Thatcher could create a big audience if we put it together properly. So he did not believe, uh, though, that the show being produced on the other TV station when I got to Knoxville, the one with the big Jim Hess, the warp your head off whole commentator. Uh, he didn't believe that that's what they wanted on WBIR. And, uh, and he, he told me he didn't, we had never built a big audience if that's what we had in mind. So, uh, you know, he and I spent quite a bit of time together before we ever made the presentation to get on that television station to make sure that I was on the same page with him. And, uh, we certainly was, he believed it as I did that that entire production at the WTVK TV station was definitely not what his station wanted. So, as I said, we worked closely together to make it happen for him. I, just, I told him, I said, we're going to upgrade the commentator. We're going to go from Big Jim Hess to Les Thatcher. Uh, that was a wow to say that's an upgrade. Would that's a that's a, that's not making a, a real point of how big a move that was. And then. Uh, you know, I told him I had plans, Les and I both, to develop a better production. We wanted new special technology in the program, like instant replays and split screens. We wanted a state-of-the-art set behind Les. And with all those changes and all that strong signal at WBIR, I felt we could make Southeastern TV show the envy of the wrestling world. Hmm. So it took off. Like a rocket from Cape Canaveral, man. I mean, by November of 1976, our numbers since moving to WBIR had jumped dramatically. Lynn Lepper, obviously, was impressed with the climb. And, uh, and I was about to find out that he wasn't the only one at the station that was impressed. So he had invited me to join him. Called me up uh, the, during the week before this uh big match that we're going to have in uh, the Coliseum on a Sunday. And he said, Ron, on Monday, the following Monday, he wanted me to come and meet with the management of WBR television station. And uh, we're going to take a look at the November rating books uh, at that time, he said. The meeting was set for January 17th, the morning after the Knoxville card on Sunday afternoon. And that cage match that we're going to have that day between Garvin, Big Bad John, my brother and myself. I'd been bleeding that afternoon before in that cage match. I had got thrown face first into one of the steel posts uh, on the cage, and I had a black eye and uh, and a cut over my right eye. Mm. So I went in the meeting with that partial black eye. It wasn't really black yet, but it was starting to get black. 
you know, and then I had some handmade butterfly stitches that I'd cut that night uh, after that match that I put on my eye. And, uh, you know, in the old days, butterfly stitches was a old style wrestler's way to, to close those cuts that you had. And then it kept them open to heal really well. But it kept you from having to go to the hospital to have stitches continually. Right. So I got to be pretty good at that during my career because you got a lot of busted eyes and uh, you end up doing some pretty good butterfly work. So everyone in the management department of this station was in this big, huge conference room when they escorted me in. And I had no idea how my swollen face and I was going to be accepted by this large group of businessmen in suits. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, and then Lynn, Lynn, as always, so being so nice, you know, he introduced me again to everyone at the table, you know, just, but it was an introduction that this, this is Ron Fuller. And, uh, and, uh, you know, he kind of explained it to those that didn't know me. So it was my first time back in that conference room in 20 months since I'd made the presentation to this this group, and actually it was a bigger group this day than the original group that I made the presentation to in April of 1975. And that's where I was able to get on the, this big station. So thankfully that day I was also wearing a nice suit. Obviously, I was the only one in the room that looked like he'd been beat up the day before. <laughs> <laughs> and then, to my surprise, I was greeted with great interest about why I looked the way I did. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> y'all wanted to know, you know, what the heck happened to you, right? So once I explained it, I, I intentionally got up from my seat and I went around the table as I would have done in any wrestling dressing room in a new territory where I'd never been before. And you went around and shook everybody's hand and you introduced yourself personally to each one of those guys. And that's exactly what I did that day at the table, you know, and I, and I had an ulterior motive in mind too. I, I felt like that was a very personal way to do business and, you know, introduce yourself personally, shake the guy's hand. But I also wanted each of them to take a real close look at my eye and decide for themselves whether wrestling was real or not then. Exactly. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and I think it was probably the best thing I did at this entire meeting, you know, and, and I'm sure when I, when I was excused and left the room later on, my eye was all they talked about. Sure <laughs> 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 That they went right into this discussion about, wow, did you see his eye? You know, so. So it was, it was, it was, I thought it was a good way to handle it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool that you, I mean, that you did that under the circumstances, a big, important meeting like that. I mean, weren't you, were you, were you worried that it could possibly have been too much for, for maybe anybody to see, or it could have changed your future <laughs> there Any, anything like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I had thoughts about it, but, uh, you know, my, my swollen face and then obviously my cut eye it kind of broke the ice for me, man. And it became the opening story of the morning, you know, and we got that out of the way and everybody had a little laugh and, you know, and, uh, and, and it, it was a good thing. I, in fact, I was suddenly happy, you know, I, I was suddenly really happy with the fact that I'd opened my <laughs> eye up the afternoon before, you know, and, and I always wanted to take advantage of every opportunity I had to prove to people that their questions about whether wrestling was real or not. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to answer those questions. And, and I'm pretty sure everyone, those intelligent guys at that table that day, were pretty sure themselves that wrestling wasn't real. 
uh, when I when I was walking around the room and introducing myself. But I'm not so sure that when I left, they felt the same way. Mm. So the general manager of the station, he passed me two rating books from Arbitron, one from Arbitron, one from Nielsen Company, and uh, with the numbers. Pretty thick little books, actually. And, uh, you know, they tell everything about every show from sign on to sign off. They called it the, the numbers book, uh, you know, for November of 1976. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't the only guy at the table that had a big smile on his face. They had all of them at, at this station made me feel like that they had a biggest stake in the success of Southeastern as I did. They were really, really backers of what the heck we were trying to accomplish with wrestling. Mm-hmm. The general manager did all the talking, and I, and I couldn't have been happier about what he says during this meeting. He said the station, first off, in its entire history, had never seen numbers like this on a Saturday show of any kind. Wow. Southeastern Wrestling had the largest audience of any show on a Saturday on any station in the market from sign on at six o'clock in the morning until prime time at eight o'clock at night. Wow. Including college football. And he <laughs> That's said huge. It just like that, <laughs> including college yeah. football. Yeah. You know, and he added then that no show in the history of that market had ever beaten college football on a Saturday until now. And he was, it was like, wow. I was like, gee, man, this is, this is, this might be going to be a fun meeting, you know? So, yeah. and so for, he continued. For, yeah. For folks that don't know, these books are a way of revealing what is successful on a TV or a radio station. What show, what time of day is the most watched? And as it turns out, Saturday, obviously, wrestling was huge and the, the number one thing on the station. Yes. And, you know, a lot of times wrestling uh, Saturdays and Sundays weren't your biggest audience either. So they were looking for programming on those weekend days that were going yeah. to clock some numbers. Yeah. And that's what we're basically sitting at this conference table about to discover what the heck is going on. Yeah. So it'll, anybody- it'll also, uh, one more thing. It'll also reveal how many folks are watching, whether they're males or females, and what age group they're in. So you were obviously hitting the the peak on on your numbers there too. Go ahead. Oh, it was, you know, it breaks down the numbers for absolutely everything. They leave nothing out. So, you know, he continued by saying, you know, Ron, please have a look at both these books. And and we've placed these tabs. They had placed these little paper tabs in there for my time slot so that I could go right to the tabs. And there, here's your numbers. You know, and uh, and then he started to explain the size and the share of the audience and uh, that my show was generating uh, specifically from two to three on Saturday afternoons. He's looking at that block because the numbers there are so astronomical compared to everything else. So and I couldn't believe what's happening in the room. I mean, both books had Southeastern Wrestling with a 75 percent share of the audience from two to three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Meaning two out of three people, every two out of three people watching TV on the four stations in that market mm-hmm. were watching wrestling. In a market the size of Knoxville at that. Yeah. And that's yeah. a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. The big market, fairly big market, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, all of Eastern Kentucky, this station went into Virginia, as far as Virginia, it covered Eastern Tennessee, it covered uh, Eastern Kentucky, almost uh, halfway to Lexington. It was a booming, booming signal. Then he drew my attention to the number of homes that turned on their TV sets when wrestling came on. 
and uh, turned them off. You know, you could see those numbers. Here's what was watching it at 1.30. Here's what's watching it at 2 o'clock. And here's what turns <laughs> them off at 3 o'clock. You know, <laughs> and the more the numbers he spewed out, the, the more impressed I was. And uh, he talked about the huge number of viewers uh, that were just into wrestling alone on Saturday afternoons in that part of the country. So he broke down the numbers, man, in all types of different ways. But what really impressed me that day, Dave, was the fact that as I looked around that room, I noticed that all those guys in there with me, none of them had seen these numbers. This hadn't been something he had discussed with them. He mm -hmm. wanted to bring them all in there at the same time as he did me. And I began to watch their faces around the table <laughs> as, as they were hearing these numbers and looking in the book. They were looking at each other like, wow, God, look at these numbers, right? You know, so, and, uh, and that just really set me on fire. I mean, I, it was one of the most enjoyable meetings I ever had with a TV station. It was really, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then he got into the tremendous growth of sales for the show and how much more they were making. Now, this is another aspect of it that you didn't mention about for, these books are important for stations because that's how they know what to charge. This is how much, how they're going to get their bread, right? So he talked about the growth and sales of the show uh, and how many, how much more they were making for my wrestling show from, than from any other Saturday program. He said the wrestling show was selling at this point for $250 per 30-second spot. And, uh, you know, this is back in 77 and entirely sold out for three months in advance. You know, he says we have no product here that sold out for one month in advance, this show sold out for three months in advance. You get a waiting list, in other words, to get on it. And he said the average spot on Saturday went for less than 75, and we're ours is going for 250. Wow. So he finished by complimenting me for the show that I developed and for the numbers I had created, the audience that, that had never been seen in that part of the country before. He asked if I would commit to making a few appearances with his sales manager. The major companies like Coca-Cola, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority Electric mm -hmm. Company, uh, major car sales companies, you know, you know, and obviously I, uh, <laughs> I right away agreed to that. I'd be absolutely I would be honored, man. And then he says in return, Ron, he goes, we want to give you 10 30 second Southeastern wrestling promos every day for the next three months. <laughs> Well, of course you said no to that. <laughs> that's almost turned my chair over. <laughs> that's incredible. And listen, when you stop and think about it, I don't know how many commercials they were playing on Saturday afternoon, but at two fifty per thirty second commercial, four commercials would make a two minute commercial break. That's a thousand dollars just in in two minutes time. And you probably had several breaks during the show. So they, it, it they had eight minutes. They had eight minutes and so figured out they had sixteen spots. Yeah. Wow. Well, they were they were ecstatic with their product. And man, I, I realized that after I watched these guys' faces when these numbers were coming out, and then he he, he throws me this promotion, uh, this free promotion package that hell, there's no way I could have afforded it. Mm -hmm. And on us like, wow, man. Well, it was a commitment. He was showing me that this station's making a commitment. They we see what you've done and we expect that it may get bigger. And that was what was great about it, Dave, is because uh, it did get bigger. You oh. know, those $250 spots were worth $1,000 each in today's yeah. money. Oh, so oh he, for sure. 
They, so the, the really great thing about the meeting was that uh, in the future, these numbers, they're not topped out yet. We're going to continue to grow through 1978 and into 1979. We're going to be a phenomenal, phenomenal product for that television station. And those numbers, Dave, as I went on in the wrestling business and went in 78 down to Gulf Coast, and when I wanted to get on a television station down there on the Gulf Coast, all I had to do was take in the numbers from WBIR and have them call the general manager. <laughs> and most of the time they never called the general manager. They looked at the numbers and they thought, and, and I had, a, I had stations down there in the Southern Gulf coast area that would, <laughs> that would say, this can't be real. You right. Know, right. Uh, you can't have an 80 share, you yeah. know, <laughs> nobody has an 80 share. you right. And you what know, was I'm, the population of Knoxville at that time? Two or 300,000. Yeah, it's about, it was over 200,000, you yeah, know, and, yeah, uh, you know, so. it was an old country town, but it was growing fast and it, it probably had well over that number of people that it was reaching outside. The city. Yeah. And you had 80% of the potential viewers locked into your show on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. You know, it, it, I was doing well, I was doing well. They were very happy with the product. That's uh, pretty awesome. All right. That's fantastic. Another great today's training, Ron. So between the age of 26 and 28, in about two years, you had successfully built your first major wrestling company into something really special, quite an accomplishment. So where are we going to ride next? What's up next? Well, let's, let's get to that card in the Knoxville Coliseum on Sunday afternoon, January 16th, 1977. Uh, Rip Smith, who is a talent and a young kid that comes out of Tampa, uh, I thought he was going to go on to be a huge star. He kind of faded away, but he's he's becoming a star in Knoxville at this point. He opens up against Don Lambert, uh, Dennis Hall, who was a big name wrestler back in the seventies, uh, took on the Gladiator. I'm talking about the original Gladiator, Jim Dalton. Don Cornoodle had a match with Louis Tillet, and then there was a six man elimination tag match. Bob Armstrong, Dick Steinborn, and Jimmy Golden faced off against the Von Steiger brothers. And the newly returned Norvell Austin. Ron Wright got his return match with the Mongolian Stomper. He had got the match the week before, and the winner was going to get the $12,000 from the Battle Royal. Uh, Stomper won that one. But Ron Wright wanted another match with him. And then I think he said, you know, I know I ain't going to get the $6,000. I've lost that opportunity. But uh, maybe I can just take it out on, out on some of the Stomper's hide. So, mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So the main event was a cage match that day. And then it was called a fence match in that part of the country. Uh, they'd never seen traditional cages like I had seen in Florida and places that I had been and wrestled, uh, St. Louis, uh, other territories. So Rob and I are against Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John in that cage match. All right. Sounds like another big afternoon in store for Southeastern fans. Let's go over the day before. On Saturday the 15th on TV, this was in 77, that promoted the card for the next afternoon. All right. I don't mind if we do, Dave. I mean, All right. you got your dates right again, man. You got it. You're, <laughs> you're on top of it as usual, man. So there had been two matches the Sunday afternoon before, uh, six days earlier than this TV, that both ended in brawls. The Golden and Steinborn tag match against the Von Steigers ended up getting Norvell Austin getting involved in it. And then as Norvell tried to leave 
<laughs> leave the ring and get back to the dressing room, he ran into Bob Armstrong waiting for him down there in the highway. And then uh, Bob just beat him on back to the ring and uh, then end up having a six man in there. Mm. And uh, the main event uh, was a Southeastern title match the week before. And that was with my brother defending his Southeastern championship against Ronnie Garvin. And Garvin was managed by Big John, Big Bad John. And I was managing Rob. And that match ended up in an even bigger brawl than the six man before. Uh, because me and Big Bad John got into it on the floor. We fought up into the ring. Referee disqualified Rob and Garvin. Uh, then a second referee came down and tried to stop it. And then finally, some wrestlers, uh, about six or eight wrestlers, had to come down and pull us apart. So uh, it got to be a wild affair, too. So at the beginning of this show, Les and I, and we did this quite a bit, we sat down and we watched the videos that we had taken of these matches. And we would kind of make a decision about which one we wanted to open the show with mm-hmm. and get that real great still shot that uh, became kind of uh, assembled and, uh, and part of the uh, tradition that we did with Southeastern Wrestling. And the only difference between these two matches was Rob's match with Garvin and John had a lot more guys involved in the, in the, in the big brawl at the end than, than the uh, tag match had. So the opening still shot for this TV was a ring full of wrestlers trying to pull Rob and I off of Garvin and Big Bad John. And there were two referees. And a total of, at one point, I, I counted them with less when it was the still shot was there. There were 12 wrestlers in this ring. Mm-hmm. looked like a battle royal, but they're actually just trying to stop us, the four of us, from fighting. Uh, there was pandemonium, obviously, not only in the ring, but in the Coliseum as well. The people wow. in the building were just going crazy, too. So. So Les did the normal introduction of the show. And when the cameras backed away to the full screenshot of the set behind him, they also picked up me and Rob sitting there with him at the set. So he welcomed us and he asked uh, for a brief explanation of what the what the screenshot behind him was all about. And uh, obviously things were completely out of control and wrestlers were filling the ring, trying, trying to help the referees to get control back, you know, and Rob and I explained kind of what had happened. And, and Les then had the director back the video up and he started it where this brawl got going. And, uh, and then we talked over what happened as this proceeded to be a bigger and bigger brawl, more and more wrestlers coming and trying to stop it. And, uh, we explained obviously then the need for a cage and some people out there in that part of the country called a defense match. Either way, the object was to put an enclosure of some kind around the ring that would keep the contestants in and other wrestlers from getting outside the ring, from getting into the ring. Mm-hmm. So this feud between us, Garvin and Big Bad John, uh, had to be settled in the cage. was the perfect place to do it. made sense. So the video ended where it began with a ring full of wrestlers. The cage match was set for the next day, and Rob and I went to the ring for the first match of the show. Uh, we had a pretty quick win over a couple of young heels that really didn't have a chance to show they were heels. We really kind of took over and <laughs> we made it quick work of it. And, uh, yeah. and we ended up both getting that fuller leg lock that you mentioned earlier. We got a double submission. They both gave up in the same hold at the same time. So Rob and I went back to the set with Les for the first interview of the show. And we were going to be talking about the upcoming cage match. And I'm real happy to to say that we're, we're now we're going to have 
five actual audios from this show 44 years ago. And the first one is going to be played now. The first of five that people are going to hear in the show today as I describe it. So, uh, Lou, uh, out there in San Francisco, my man, if if you don't mind, could you please play that, that audio for the first interview with me and my brother? All right. Tomorrow, Ron, when you and Robert climb inside that wire with Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin, it's going to be locked shut. Nobody's going to be able to get in. Nobody out until there's a winner. That's right, Lesson. The key word is Big Bad Johnny. Nobody going out. But you're going out, Big Bad John. You're going out cold. Because me and the kid right here are going to take care of you, Big Bad John. And I got one thing to tell you. Terry Funk, I'll send you a little message, Terry Funk. And I'll send you a message in a way you'll understand, Funk. When they pack up Big Bad John in a crate, ship him back to Texas, that's when you're going to say, we better not mess with the Fullers no more. We better stay in Texas. Because you better stay in Texas. And a cage match is just that. The most, most dangerous match of any type you can have. And baby, you want to get down. You want to be bad. You want to get it on. We're going to get it on tomorrow, Big Bad John. And like I said one time before, there's one person here in town that's big and bad, and his name ain't John. It's Robert and Ron. <laughs> It's always a thrill, man, to hear these interviews from more than 40 years ago. Not just because it's me at this point, but it's uh, it, no matter who it is. Uh, and, uh, and the great thing is we've got four more of these coming on and coming in this same show. So the second TV match of the show was a six-man tag. The Southeastern Tag Champions, Curtin Carl Von Steiger, with their new buddy, Norval Austin, faced off against young Rip Smith, great talent, young Don Carnoodle, great talent, and Don Wright, Ron Wright's brother. And the fans in the studio and at home, they got all they could want from this match, man. It was a great, great six-man tag. Uh, it was like a main event in the arena. I mean, it was just phenomenal, and it probably went for 15, almost 20 minutes. And they went back and forth during the match, and no team really had an advantage until the Germans in Austin stopped Don Wright. They punished him, man, for several minutes, and then he finally made a hot tag. He was able to get away, and he made a tag to Canoodle. And boy, that studio crowd went nuts, man, and so did Canoodle and Smith. Uh, those two young boys hit the ring, and they took care of all three of them for a second there. They end up on the outside of the ring, uh, both Canoodle and Smith and the, with the Von Steigers. And Norvell sneaked over, and he got poor Don Wright, who'd been uh, pretty well uh, decimated in the match. And he picked him up and he shot him into the ropes. And then he ran to the opposite side of the ring, hit the ropes, and he came sailing man through the air uh, and hit him with that lethal man, flying headbutt of his. And he captured the win, but but he sure didn't get the hearts of the fans. And they let the three of them know that, man. <laughs> they they weren't happy to see it in that way. Uh, so they went to set, the three of them, for the second interview. They all three bragged about winning the six-man elimination tag match the next day. They said, we promised that we're not going to lose a single member off our team. We're going to beat all three of them, but then none of us being beat. And they said, basically, Armstrong, Golden, Steinborn, they have no chance against the three of us. And, and they weren't through with their day. They're going to be seen again in this show. Uh, the personality profile was with Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin. And for this profile, we did it in Studio B. We brought in a section of the cage, uh, one-fourth of the cage, one of the sides of the cage, and uh, we placed it in the studio. 
we put Les and Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin behind the cage and the camera's on the opposite side so that the entire profile was shot through the cage. And they talked uh, looking through the cage. And uh, this one was about uh, what they, you know, this cage match that was upcoming was going to be one of the nastiest in the history of Southeastern, that was for sure. So Les, Big Bad John and Ronnie, they did the profile, as I said, standing up on the opposite side of the wire, man. It gave this this uh, whole profile a, a really effective way to promote the match. It just gave it a really different feel. And then, thank goodness we have another actual video in this personality profile that came from Big Bad John 44 years ago. And he mentions during this short piece here that came out of this profile, he's going to talk about the, the cage and being pulled through the cage and your body just split out of it, being cut to piece. You know, he, he does this big bad John thing. And he then mentions in this interview a nasty name of somebody that the fans in the Southeast hate. And uh, that wrestler is, is going to return to Southeastern quite a few times in the coming months. Mm. So uh, right now, Lou, uh, can we play uh, part of that actual audio from that personality profile? And Southeastern on Saturday, January 15, 1977. Together, Fuller, I'm going to tell you something. Hey, Fox done called me. It's time for violence. It's time to get out of the heat. Jump into the kitchen. Watch the fire. Because the fire going to blaze and the blood's going to roll. Wow, it's always fun to hear those. That is, that, that's really cool because you get the feeling of being in that TV studio way back then. All right, Ron, this seems like a good spot. Let's take a break. We'll continue. This stud cast will pick up right where we left off when we come back. Stay right where you are. The stud is becoming famous for tributes to passing stars. Andre the Giant, Ron Wright, Bob Armstrong, Jack Briscoe in the Jerry Briscoe Super, and Jim Barnett. Now he pays tribute to maybe the best wrestler, amateur and professional of all time. The legendary Danny Hodge. He is the most honored American amateur wrestler ever, and he passed on Christmas Day 2020. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash StudCast. He was the only amateur wrestler in history to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated Magazine. The best amateur wrestler in America receives the Danny Hodge Award in his honor. It's the Heisman Trophy of Wrestling. He's in every Wrestling Hall of Fame, amateur and professional in this country. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash StudCast. Three hours. Hear his tremendous life story. You'll tell your friends about it. Fellow Oklahomans, Jerry Briscoe and Cowboy Bill Watts, join Ron to tell their stories and make fans aware of just how important and successful this star was. If you want to know real wrestling, Super Studcast number 37 is an absolute must hear. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Only $2.99. It's the best deal in wrestling. Hey, welcome back in. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, on another Stud cast. 
You can get every one of these studcasts, of which this is number 182. They're all at tnstud.com, tnstud.com. They're all absolutely free. And of course, the super studcasts are available there as well and at patreon.com slash studcast. All right, let's get back to it. Where to now, Ron? Well, we're going to go back to that TV show. We ended up uh, at the end of the personality profile before the break. And there's going to be two fan favorites in the last part of this program. We're going to finish out that are going to have live matches on this show. Ron Wright was the first. And he's going to get a big win over a very big guy, Don Lambrick. And uh, when this match was over, Don was on the set to watch what he thought was a huge win by his new man, the Mongolian Stomper, over Ron Wright, the one in the match in which he won the $12,000, both guys' money for the Battle Royal, basically, from the Sunday two weeks before. Once he gets there and he's all ready to crank it up like Don always is, uh, something had to be rescheduled. And, boy, he wasn't too happy with that right off. You know, wait a minute, what the heck's going on here? And uh, you're probably going to notice it when you hear this audio, but if we can, uh, Lou, uh, and this audio is a little longer than the others, other pieces, because this is in the actual program itself, and it's not an interview. So, Lou, if you can please play that Don Carson video from this show 44 years ago. Stopper, but the film was lost or misplaced. We do not have that film right now. You are a liar, first of all, because the film was not lost, because Ron Wright got the film. He didn't want the Tennessee idiots out there to see what happened to him. We in do that have match. a film, though. We do have a film from Harlan, Kentucky, where uh, your stopper wrestled Dick Steinborn, the gladiator, for the Harlan County Championship. I want to Let's take a look at that and uh, hear your comments about the Mongolian stomper. You take a look at the Mongolian stomper, and you take a look at what he is doing right now to Dickie Steinborn. This is in Harlan, Kentucky, where he won the Eastern Kentucky Trophy, the Harlan Trophy, ladies and gentlemen. He's putting the boots to it right now, and you're going to see something that you ain't ever seen before in your whole entire life. The man is going to be the winner. I'm going to tell you that in advance because I want you to pay attention how it happened. It's a good thing that the referee moved out of the way there, or he wouldn't be with us today either. Take a look. Take a look. That's what what is happening to Dickie Steinborn. Of course, there's only one comment that I have to make. Dickie Steinborn, I overestimated Dickie Steinborn. And then I turned right around and look at this. I wrestled with this man and I wrestled against this man. And the man did something that I never thought that he'd ever be able to do. He actually got to the stumper. He hit him a couple of licks. He even had to sleep on the stumper, but the stumper came out of it. Now take a look. Take a look now what happened. Yes, I'm sure it's very evident on the film exactly what happened. There goes happening. the stump right there, and here goes the one, two, three count, and there is the winner of the Kentucky Trophy, ladies and gentlemen. That is only one. That is only one trophy. There's been no championship built. Let me, uh, championship let me ask you a question. Uh, we're talking about the stomper. We're looking at him on film. You're here alone. Where is the stomper? Well, first of all, it's none of your business, but I'll tell you anyway. The stomper has a little sore throat because I think that I gave him a little overdose of gunpowder. I believe that's exactly what happened. But let me tell you something else. Ron Wright. 
You thought you were going to get the $6,000. You didn't get it, did you? You didn't well, touch the man. From Don Carson talking about the stomper. We're he out of time, Carson. I'm sorry. We're going to break for commercial. But he won't touch and the man. we'll be back right after this. There are a couple of things I want to bring up here. Not only were we shooting video in the major arena in Knoxville every week, this show has a piece of video from a small city uh, that they just watched it, in fact, in this audio that you listened to, a small city in eastern Kentucky that was becoming a huge wrestling market, Harlan, Kentucky. And uh, if you notice, not only was this city put on the wrestling map with the video being shown on Southeastern Wrestling, it also, in this video, had its own tournament, you know, and, uh, and the Mongolian Stomper won this tournament. So practically no other territories anywhere in the world and during 1977 were doing this type of thing, uh, shooting video, much less shooting video, not in the major cities, but in some of the smaller cities. Mm-hmm. So we have another audio from Ron Wright after this match and, and Carson's segment. Carson just finished his segment. Then comes the interview. So Don's going to be, uh, you know, he's represented the Mongolian Stomper. And now Ron Wright is going to finish with the interview and tell his side of the story. And this one is the third interview of the show. Uh, Ron mentions that he wasn't able to win his battle royal $6,000 from the Sunday before but uh, he intended to take it out on the stomper in another way, you know. So uh, please, if you get, uh, if you can, Lou, uh, let's play that audio from 44 years ago with Ron Wright. I hope he says Tennessee dog weapon. He don't. William <laughs> Stomper, and I'm sure everyone right now aware of what a devastating, destructive machine he is. And of course, with Don Carson in his corner, who knows what could happen. Listen, there's no doubt you've got two tough men down there, but people may run around and say I'm crazy for coming out and asking for a return match with the man, but he's still got $6,000 of my money, and Ron Wright's not by no means beat. I'm still out there after that money, and I guarantee you whether Don Carson's out there or whatnot, I'm coming out there and I'm going to do my best to take $6,000 out of the man's hide, and I'm going to try to collect it all right out there tomorrow and get my money and get out of there and have it over with. And they say they're not going to pay it, but the best way that I can go and collect that money is take it out of his hide if I have to go through Don Carson to do it. Of course, uh, Don Carson will be there in the Stomper's Corner. The Stomper will be wrestling Ron Wright, a great array of stars from our tag team action, the Fullers. Against Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin, the ring surrounded by a fence. Cadillac tournament matches, a great array of stars, and we said it's tomorrow. The Knoxville City Coliseum, 3 p.m., the bell time, and also wrestling tonight in Morristown. This show ended with the fire of Bob Armstrong. Man, he was wrestling Bill Dundee in a single match. And at the end of it, after he had pinned Dundee, the Von Steiger brothers and Norvell Austin, all three of them hit the ring, man. And uh, obviously, he's one of the guys in the six-man elimination match with him the next day in the Coliseum. And they wanted to get him hurt. Be great if they could hurt Bob Armstrong today. And then it's a five-man match in the It's going to make it easier for them. And uh, when they hit that ring, that studio went absolutely crazy. They managed to get him down. uh, But boy, that Bob, what a ball of fire, man. He fought to his feet. He started using some karate on him and whatever else he needed, man. Uh, By the time Jimmy Golden and Don Steinborn got to the ring to save him, he didn't need any help. (laughs) He just about cleaned the whole ring out himself. It was about all over. So Steinborn, uh, Jimmy, and Bob, 
they all went directly to the set with Les. And uh, you can hear the crowd in this audio that we're about to play. They're still excited about what they just saw. And Steinborn and Golden are just as excited as the crowd about their partner for the next day. So, uh, Lou, if you can, let's uh, please play this uh, last talk, actual audio from, from this television show. And at this stipulation, and of course the Southeast promoters have agreed to it, we want an elimination tag team match. you got three men on one side and three men on the other. And when a man loses a fall, he goes to the dressing room. And with the power that this man just displayed right here and right now, Mr. Bob Armstrong taking on three men at one time, I don't think Jimmy Golden and I have any problems with this man as a partner in elimination six-man tag team tomorrow afternoon. Of course, Jim, I think it boils down to this, that, uh, that you and Dickie are after the Von Steigers, and uh, you'll be looking for Bob single out Norville Austin to leave the German right. for you. That's exactly right. And I want to tell you something, Von Steigers, I'm sick of hearing you talk about making people give up. Amen. You cost me that Cadillac. That Cadillac was mine, brother. I'm going to have to take $12,000 with the Cadillac out of your so-called royal German blood that you call it. We're going to see how that German blood comes out and how it looks when it's coming out of your face, brother. The dogs is going to be loose on you tomorrow. Bobby got to be two on one before that match is over today. It could be. It was three on one just a minute ago, but tomorrow it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to have two fine competitors here for my partner, and then it'll be three on three. Let's see how they do face to face. And remember, an elimination match, when you lose, brother, you leave. And I hope it ends up that I got that Norvell Austin. Let me tell you something, Burhead. When I get you, all that walking and talking you've been doing ain't going to do you a damn bit of good because you're going down. All right, that is awesome. That's another great TV right there. I love these actual audios. And Ron, I remember back in the day, some of the announcers would go, Bob Armstrong, he's a house of fire. So some of the descriptive ways that they would talk about Bob or some of the other wrestlers were really cool. That is just awesome right there. All right. So where are we riding now, Ron? How about we give everybody the results of the card from January 16th, 1977. We'll talk about how these matches finished. Rip Smith in that first match on Sunday afternoon, January 16th, Civic Coliseum in Knoxville, uh, got a win over Don Lambert. Dick Steinborn. Uh, amazingly enough, imagine this. He he showed up again in the, one of the Gladiators matches, and he caused Jim Dalton to lose a record 13 straight match in Southeastern <laughs> Wrestling since he had returned. So, 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 I mean, Steinborn is really having a heyday, and there's becoming a lot of heat between the, the Gladiator and Dick Steinborn at this point, and uh, that's going to start going places in the next couple of weeks. Don Kernoodle won his match against Louis Tillette. Ron Wright lost again to the Mongolian Stomper, but this time he fared better than he did the week before. In fact, he knocked the Stomper off his feet for the first time he had come to Southeastern. And the Stomper going down got a huge pop from the ground. You know, I mean, it's like, wow, he can be knocked down. <laughs> you know, the crowd is just... The Stomper was just was so impressive that all these fans, they were just amazed at, at what he was. So the six-man elimination match, uh, it went as follows. It's an elimination. So when you lost, you left the ring. Steinborn was the first guy to get eliminated. He left the ring. It left Austin and the two Steigers, then there against Armstrong and Jimmy Golden. And uh, then Norvell lost. And now that left Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden against the Von Steiger brothers. 
And uh, then things really got interesting in this uh, elimination tag match. Golden and Armstrong eliminated both the Germans back to back. And, uh, you know, that win earned them a Southeastern Championship tag match the next week. I mean, you know, like the fans weren't crazy. I mean, uh, you know, Golden and Armstrong, hands being held and raised, and uh, both the Germans, everybody's out on that team. It was a great, great elimination tag match. We got to the cage match, and Rob and I, we won the cage match. Uh, I was able to actually put the fuller leg lock on Big Bad John, and he gave up. Uh, wow. And I wanted to, I wanted to take it further than that. I wanted to really see if I could break his big old fat leg. <laughs> but Garvin jumped in there and he broke my hole before I could find out, you know. So uh, oddly enough, I'm going to get another chance next week uh, because I'm going to be wrestling Big Bad John in a Texas Death Lumberjack match on the very next card. That's a Texas Death match rules, but you've got wrestlers all around the ring to keep the contestants inside. So John ain't going to be able, he couldn't run in the cage and he ain't going to be able to run in the lumberjack <laughs> match either. So Rob is going to have to defend the next week, the Southeastern title against the Mongolian Stomper. And it's the Stomper's first ever shot at the Southeastern title. So we got some great stuff coming next week as well. Man, it sounds like it. A great afternoon for fans on January 16th and some to really good matches being scheduled for the next Studcast as well. What was the attendance that Sunday, January 16th of 77? Well, it was by far. Uh, well, it wasn't by far, but, but it was the biggest in 1977 so far. Uh, 5,200 fans. You know, uh, and that building, man, I, I went out and looked at it. It was so beautiful, man. All those seats and that whole place seemed to be full. I mean, we were just rocking. Man. We it was amazing. We were doing uh, for many weeks uh, about 4,000 over there in Chilhowee. And now once coming into the Coliseum, what we were getting is fans that didn't want to go to that small building. And uh, we're getting a different audience, too. And it's, uh, it's really amazing what's happening in 1977 at that point. Man, it really is because you're, you're busting at the seams in the Coliseum. Your ratings can't be any bigger on TV. So you're kind of feeling the love from, from everything and everybody. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, I wished we had a bigger building. At this point, I'm going, gosh, is that I uh, wish that we had a Coliseum that had another 5,000 seats in it. I don't know how many we could have filled, but uh, we were already nearing capacity of our largest building. In fact, we're going to run a lot of times in the summer instead of the Coliseum. We're going to go back into the amphitheater because it actually holds more people than the Coliseum. Were you turning people away at either location? Not yet. Uh, we're going to hit that in April when uh, Harley Race comes to town and I oh, wrestling for the yeah. world title. Uh, and uh, we're going to turn away maybe as many as we're in the inside the building. Are you kidding? Holy yeah. God. Maybe wow. might turn away the 5,000 that would have done 10,000. So, yeah. That, that, but that's the growth of, of what's happening at this point, you know, and it's it's got a lot to do with those numbers. And imagine now this, uh, you got to take into consideration that we're about to get all these promotional spots for the next three months to promote the show like it's not already a powerful product. And uh, that just makes the show with a bigger audience. And the bigger the show's audience, the more people want to buy a ticket. 
no doubt. That's awesome. All right, Ron, I think it's time for a nice cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning trees we do every week at this time. So remind us again who asked the question and what was it once again? Well, the learning tree question for this stud task came from a gentleman named Kenny Stevens. And Kenny asked, uh, how and why did your father, Buddy Fuller, decide on the name Fuller for his wrestling career? What's the story or meaning behind it? So that's a great question, Kenny. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening that are, are glad you asked it. And I probably wouldn't have done answered this on a learning tree without it being a question sent to me. And it, and it happened. This thing that my dad deciding to take another name, it kind of happened in a very strange way. Uh, but to begin to answer this question, let's start with why he chose that name. I think it's a good place to start. My grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, he didn't encourage my father to become a wrestler. In fact, if anything, he discouraged him from being a wrestler. They never had a usual uh, relationship like fathers and son do. And uh, if you listen to all the stud cast out there, you're probably aware of that. One of the reasons, as a great example, is my grandfather taking over the Memphis Territory from Dad in 1960 after he had exploded that city of Memphis and built that tremendous territory. My grandfather basically was behind a group that took it from him. So my father's given name was Edward, and he was named after his grandfather, Ed Welch. Uh, that was Roy. Roy's mm -hmm. my grandfather. That was Roy's father, Ed Welch. Ed was a half-American half Indian, okay? And he had a natural ability as a wrestler, and, and, and Roy told me about it. He said, you know, he wrestled with him quite a bit, him and Herb and, and uh, Jack, the older sons. And he said, dang, he, he said, we couldn't beat him. He was really, really good, you know. But obviously, Ed came along long before professional wrestling was available to jump into. But, uh, you know, all four of his sons are going to make it into the pros. They're all going to become wrestlers. So my father's experiences with wrestling growing up in the sport were much different than mine and Rob's. I mean, the dad, dad always pushed us to wrestle. He wanted us to be wrestlers. He taught us how to wrestle and how to shoot some from six, seven years old. We started getting some training. But uh, dad's experience was a whole lot different. Uh, one of them is he almost got killed by Roy's wrestling bear, Ginger, when he was 12 years old. He almost got eaten. Roy never offered to teach dad or nor encourage dad to wrestle. And uh, when dad was old enough, after World War II, he served in World War II. And when he came home, he decided he wanted to become a wrestler in spite of his father. So in 1946, he began to train with a great old timer named Charlie Carr. And Charlie Carr uh, trained my brother and myself uh, when we were about 15, 16 years old. Uh, Charlie was an old-time shooter man and well-respected man by wrestlers around the world, kind of like Danny Hodge's type of respect. He, he could hurt you, and uh, guys knew it, and they didn't mess with Charlie Carr. So Charlie Carr spent several years working with my dad, teaching him mostly how to shoot. He didn't teach him how to work. He taught him how to shoot. And then when he was ready, he passed him on to dad's uncle, who was Lester Welch, the fourth of the brothers, of Roy's brothers. Lester had just at this point just broken into wrestling himself. Lester was about the same age as my dad. He was almost 20 years younger than Roy. 
Roy had four brothers born over a 20-year period of time, Lester being way later than the other three. So I know Roy didn't like the idea of dad wrestling, uh, but Lester was very close to dad. Uh, those guys grew up together and they were about the same age. So saw the potential in dad and Lester, Lester took him under his wing and he started teaching him uh, how to work. So my father began to wrestle 1948, actually in the ring. And uh, that was the year I was born. He used his real name, Edward Welch, when he started. And Roy didn't like the idea. I'm sure he didn't like the idea, you know, and especially he's another Welch, you know. It's like, gosh, ain't there enough of them? There were already four of them at this point, uh, Roy, uh, his brother Jack, his brother Herb, and Lester, who was, uh, you know, the fourth of the original brothers. So around 1950 to 1952, my father was steadily improving as a wrestler, and, uh, and he felt like he was almost lost uh, in the confusion of so many res- Welch wrestling uh, in the in same part of the country. You know, you got, uh, at that point, Four guys, they're all still competing at that point, and they're all Welch's wrestling in that same general area of the South. So I asked him when I was a young boy, I asked him the same question that I'm answering here today. I said, you know, basically, why did you change your name? And how did you decide on the new name? You know, and, uh, and this is what he told me. He said he felt he needed to have a name that was uniquely tied to him, and he didn't want to feel like he became a success because his last name was Welch. He said he was working for a new promoter in Louisiana that he had never met. And uh, shortly after he arrived at the building and before he had introduced himself to the promoter, he overheard a conversation between two of the people that were running the town, along with the promoter. And and in the conversation, the guy said, you know, one of the guys on the card here they'd never met hadn't shown up yet. So... Then dad listened very closely, you know, he goes, well, I mean, darn, you know, there's a guy here that uh, is booked and he ain't here, you know, and he, so the one guy asked him, well, what's that guy's name? And the, and the guy says, this, that guy's name is Buddy Fuller. So when it came around to dad <laughs> and he's sitting there, he, he hadn't introduced himself and then the real promoter hadn't shown up and they kind of came around to dad and he, he says, what's your name? And he said, my name's Buddy Fuller. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, you know, from that night on, uh, Dad was no longer Edward Welch ever again in the <laughs> ring. He was Buddy wow. Fuller. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and I know everybody out there is asking yourselves, you know, did he ever meet or did he ever run into the real Buddy Fuller? Exactly, you know? yes. <laughs> yeah, and I asked him that, you know, and I, and, he, and oddly enough, you know, he said, uh, no, I never encountered him, never heard of him again. Nobody wow. ever, ever heard of him. So so he substituted, not only did he substitute in a way, he took the wrestler's name and he kept it all his career uh, that he had never, ever met and uh, nobody else had ever met. So kind of crazy. So Mr. Stevens, you know, that answers both questions, I guess, about not only my father and his adopted name, but it answers the questions about mine and Rob's name. You know, I mean, all my life, I went to school as Welch and. I signed all my papers and my contracts as Welch, but uh, everybody knew me as Fuller. So Mm. it's an odd situation. So uh, both Rob and I, we spent our careers under a false last name, just like my dad had, you know. So it 
So it didn't make any difference. So the bottom line was, I guess, Mr. Stevens, it didn't make any difference, really, because it was never the name you had as a wrestler that made you famous. It was the ability you had in the ring that made you famous. That's what made it happen. Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, And I have to ask about Jimmy Golden. Where did his name come from? Now, Jimmy's dad was named Golden. Oh, real name. A real name. Okay. Uh, Jimmy's dad was named Bill Golden. He married uh, my dad's sister, whose name was Ruby. And when Jimmy was born, he became Jimmy Golden. And by golly, he wrestled his entire career as Jimmy Golden. But uh, Rob and I, we had to go out there as somebody else for our entire career. But like I said, it really didn't make any difference because the name didn't mean anything to being successful. It all depended on how good you were out there in the ring. Well, all right. Another fascinating story, Ron. The Welch family, without a doubt, is one of the best stories in professional wrestling history, no doubt. On Facebook, the Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page is full and cannot accept friends there anymore. Go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. You can like him and follow him there and automatically become friends with a legend. He also has another page on Facebook. To find out more about his thrilling novel called Brutus, go to his author, Ron Fuller Welch page, like him and follow him there, and learn the latest about the world's most famous lion. His name is Brutus. Twitter and Instagram, it's Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 37, part one, the fantastic tribute to maybe the sport's greatest, Danny Hodge, is now available. What, what would you want to say about that? Because that's a really great show, and I've heard you talk a lot about Danny Hodge. Oh, geez. Uh, undoubtedly, the the greatest uh, amateur wrestler in American history, no doubt, and maybe the greatest wrestler ever in, in the history of the sport. Uh, and just a phenomenal guy. Uh, in this first uh, part one is Jerry Briscoe, who is was born 15 miles from where Danny Hodge was born. Danny Hodge to him was an absolute hero. Jerry Tomey said there were three people that were legendary in Oklahoma, and uh, <laughs> Danny Hodge and Mickey Mantle were two of those three. I can't wow. remember the third one that he had, but uh, you know Danny Hodge's name in Oklahoma is just—it's magic, and uh, and he deserved every bit of it. It's unbelievable. We're going to talk the records he had. Jerry has some stories that's unreal. Uh, one about the wrestling bear that, that Danny scared the bear. The bear was squealing <laughs> and trying to get away from Danny. Oh you know my God. I mean? It's like, uh, you know, so uh, it's a great, going to be a great program and it's a great tribute. And uh, for fans, if you don't know anything about Danny Hodge, uh, he may be the one wrestler that you really need to know. Uh, just one remarkable fact he is the only wrestler in the history of wrestling, of amateur wrestling to make the cover of Sports Illustrated. Wow. He just, he was just unbelievable. Two Olympics, uh, just a crazy, crazy good. And a super guy. I don't want to leave that out. Uh, It had a phenomenal wife uh, that everybody loved, just like they did Danny. Great stories. I I highly recommend this one. And uh, part two is going to be with Cowboy Bill Watts. So uh, it's going to be just as good. Bill has so many stories of Danny and. And uh, all these fans love stories, man. And uh, this one is going to be full of great stories about a great man. 
That's awesome. Super Studcast number 37, part one. And Danny, of course, passed away on Christmas Day of 2020. All right, so find everything about Ron on his website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com. Souvenirs, his chilling thriller, Brutus, the highly acclaimed Southeastern Continental Classic DVD five-pack, only $39.99, and that includes shipping. So where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, as part of the Southeastern Gives Back program uh, that we're going to begin in 1977, Les begins to put together the first charity basketball game between the wrestlers and the outstanding celebrities from that part of the country. Wow, this this basketball game is a basically a who's who, man, of uh, that part of the country's big people. Uh, politicians, mayors of Knoxville, two mayors and of Knoxville, uh, the uh, University of Tennessee head football coach and uh, Heisman Trophy winner Johnny Majors. I mean, wow, it just uh, world boxing champion, uh, Big John Tate, it's just like uh, who's who. That's going to be in the next program. We're going to talk about that. Obviously, uh, this this uh, giving back program it's going to be- make a huge success out of Southeastern. It's going to it's going to move us forward within that community for sure. Coliseum cards are going to just keep improving. The next one's going to have seven matches. It's going to have a Southeastern and the Southeastern Tag Championship match. Uh, it's going to include Stomper's first title match. It's going to have a Texas Death Lumberjack match. It's going to have a Cadillac tournament match and I'm in more. I mean, so so plus another TV with uh, 44-year-old audios. We've got some <laughs> more audios coming next week. And the learning trick question next week is about an annual event on New Year's Eve that was in the Hyatt Hotel, which was right across the street from the Coliseum. And every year there on New Year's Eve, they had a party like no other party anywhere in the country that I know of. And uh, this person saw Les and Jimmy Golden and I there on New Year's Eve in 1977. So we're going to talk <laughs> a little bit about that and the party and, uh, and what went on in this hotel. And so I guess fans are going to get to find out about Russell's social lives and popularity some next week, too, Dave. It's not going to have anything to do with you wearing a lampshade on your head, is it? Uh, well, I don't know. It could have, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next week, we'll be setting up a charity basketball game, wrestling for titles, Cadillacs, and a Texas death lumberjack match. Plus, learn how you single superstars of the sport played on New Year's Eve. I don't know if we really want to know that. That really ought to be something special. That's cool. So it seems to me, Dave, you know, uh, a lot of these stud casts have gotten, have turned into being something special, man. Uh, I just really am enjoying them. And, uh, and I really appreciate all the great comments I've been getting about them. And, uh, and I want to thank all of those out there today that rode with us today. And, uh, and if you enjoyed the ride, Tell your friends to saddle up for the next one with us and uh, and join us. So uh, take care of yourselves, everybody, and others out there. And uh, may God bless us all. This is David Summers also thanking everyone for joining us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three.
This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.